All right, well, today we start a new series. And just to let you know where we're going through the rest of the year, um, today we'll start a series uh, six week long that will be in the book of Jonah, Old Testament book, uh, the fifth uh, of the, the fifth book in the, the section of minor prophets there. Um, and that'll take us all the way up through Thanksgiving. OK, and then um, that'll that'll I mean, after Thanksgiving, it's Christmas time. Right. And so uh, we'll do a Christmas series called Advent uh, over this December time frame. And so Jonah all the way up to Thanksgiving and then Advent through the rest of the year. And and then we'll jump into 2015 and we'll start the year off looking at stewardship. So more about that as we as we go on. But for now. We're going to be in the book of Jonah for a few weeks, and if you'll allow me, uh, I'm going to take a little bit of time up front uh, outside of just, you know, unpacking the scriptures to just talk about the Old Testament, um, Old Testament uh, prophetic books to set up um, how, you know, how we're going to get through this book of, of Jonah. Before I do that, let me pray. Father, we are grateful for the day. Thank you for the fall weather and for the uh, just the beauty uh, of your creation during this time of year. Uh, Lord, we thank you for your grace that's new to us today. We thank you for um, the gathering of your church. And Lord, we are, we're not so naive that uh, we're not aware that other churches are meeting right now around our city. And we pray um, just in all those places where your people are gathering today, that you would meet them there by your spirit. God, that you would... Um, have your gospel preached, that it would be effective to, to save folks, that people would come to, to salvation by the power of God today under the hearing of your word. We pray that same thing for ourselves, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see, uh, especially out of this Old Testament book, what you would have for us uh, today and in the coming weeks. And pray, we pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. All right. And so if you're, if you're going to use one of our pew Bibles, and there are some Bibles Stacked underneath the middle rows of seats. Uh, Jonah is on uh, page 502. Okay, And so Jonah is a difficult book to find. Um, In fact, in that pew Bible, the whole whole story of Jonah is covered in a a page and a half. Of course, it's like five-point font. And so you're going to need your magnifying glass to to see it. Um, And as I always do, for those of you that have my Bible, I'm on page 935, if that will help you out. 502 in the pew Bible, 935 in my ESV Cow, cowhide leather kind of Bible. Um, I'm going to start talking about some background, and then I'm going to give you the setting of this book. We're going to talk about the story of Jonah itself and then the theme. And I'm going to give you all that before we even launch into the text this morning. Um, firstly, Jonah is a prophet, and we learn that from verse 1. Verse 1 says this, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, and it goes on to unfold the story from there. And in, whenever you're reading an Old Testament book, typically you you're able to to understand the genre that you're reading, especially if it's a prophet by these words that the prophet uh, either was spoken to by God. They received something. God God allowed them to see or hear something that they were supposed to go and in turn convey it to, to other people. And so the word of the Lord came to Jonah. OK, we don't know about Jonah's call. We, we're not giving given the, the information about his life, his story prior to this moment. Prophets were messengers. They were um, they spoke on behalf of God. And really, there are two roles that we see prophets fulfilling in all of the Old Testament. Firstly, prophets were, I mean, kind of like me. They were preachers. They were sent to people uh, specifically for the nation of Israel. They were sent to various parts of of the nation of Israel to remind them of the covenant that was between them and God. And there's a lot of ways that we can articulate what covenant means. There's this refrain in the Bible um, that that God says these words, I'll be your God. And he invites the, the people of Israel to be his people. And so more than anything, a covenant is a promise. It's a promise that God is going to protect that he's going to be for a people and not against them, that he's going to, to bless them. We, we firstly see the, uh, uh, the semblance of a covenant all the way in the beginning of the Bible with, with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve served under a covenant, a covenant of works with God. God uh, promised to, to bless them. 
He said, be fruitful and, and multiply. I've given you all this, 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 uh, this, the grandeur of the Garden of Eden, uh, uh, the, the, really the temple of God on earth. And all you have to do is obey me. Okay? And if Adam and Eve had obeyed God in the Garden of Eden, really what would have happened is all that stuff that you see in Revelations, that the end comes and it's like we're with God forever, that would have been the outcome. But, of course, what did Adam and Eve do? They ruined it all. They, they, they sinned, right? So that was really the symbols of the first covenant. Um, the next time we see, the, the, really the first time we see the word covenant used in the Bible is with Abraham. Okay, Genesis 12 through 15, God calls a man and basically tells him to go to a land that I'll, that I'll show you. And the promise that God gave to Abraham is that he would give him land, the land of Canaan, which ends up being the, the, the promised land for the nation of Israel. He would give him descendants after his name and his lineage, that those descendants, some would grow to be kings and that he would bless him. Abraham would be a blessing that he might be. A, he'd be blessed. He would be a blessing to all the nations. We see uh, God's covenant with Israel ratified at Mount Sinai. And on Mount Sinai, God came with thunder and lightning and he spoke. OK, and he gave uh, the nation of Israel, the Ten Commandments, the moral law, and through uh, rest of the rest of the Pentateuch, the five books of, of, of the first five books of the Bible, primarily Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, we see God unfolding rules, the, the, the moral law, the civil law um, that would govern how Israel were to be in relationship with God. And this is, this is the, the way God uh, um, conveyed it to them. You obey and you'll have my blessing. For all your days. And if you don't obey, there'll be not just blessing, there'll be curse. And that curse will eventually lead you to exile. I'll completely give you up. I will end the covenant and I'll turn you over even to the point of of destroying you. And so a, a prophet was sent to convey those words to the nation of Israel. That was the first thing. The second thing that prophets were used to do was really to serve as lawyers. Now, I, we got some lawyers in the room. And lawyers, you're either a prosecutor or a defense lawyer. God would use prophets in the, the, the Bible days to serve as covenant lawyers of, of prosecutors, such that if Israel did not abide by the law, okay, the, the Mosaic law, the, the, all those things you see written in, in the Pentateuch about what they, what they were supposed to do, then uh, if they weren't abiding by those stipulations, then God would enact the curse. Okay, go to go to Deuteronomy chapters twenty-seven and twenty-eight. You see blessings and you see curses, and there's some there's some pretty wild stuff in there in regards to what they were supposed to do and what would happen if they were ultimately not obedient to God. Now God used these curses to draw His people back to Himself, and God would send prophets like Jonah to the nation of Israel. Here's, here's some of the prophets that God sent to the northern tribes. He sent Isaiah. You've heard his name before. Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Jeremiah. Those are some of the prophets, not all of them, that he sent to the northern tribes of Israel. And then to the southern tribes, he sent uh, some of these prophets, Elijah, Elisha, Hosea, Amos, and Jonah. So when you're reading your Bible, okay, you, got, you know, I don't know how, many, how often you guys turn to the latter half of the Old Testament and start reading those prophetic books. But in the, the chance that your Bible reading plan brings you those books... When you're reading the Bible, especially Isaiah to Malachi, these prophets are all doing this. They are reminding Israel of the covenant, but they're also serving as covenant prosecutors, saying you have failed to abide by the covenant and you are going to be under curse if you don't get right. And the prophets were some they were some interesting people. They use metaphors and images. If you look at some of uh, the things that Ezekiel and Jeremiah did, I mean, they were demonstrative in terms of conveying um, what God wanted the people to do and what would happen to them if they did not obey. Um, Israel was called a rotten fig. Uh, she was called a bride who had left her husband. They, he, God even sent the prophets to use words like, you're, you're whoring against me as, as your betrothed. And so... Why, why is this important? Why is this backdrop of, of prophets and what they were supposed to do important for us as we jump into this book of Jonah? It's important primarily because Jonah, the, the book of Jonah is completely different. Okay, if you read Isaiah to Malachi, then you, you, hear, you hear about oracles and God is saying things through these prophets, reminding of the covenant, and then 
um, talking about what happens if Israel did not abide by the covenant. Jonah, although he's a minor prophet, he's a, a, a minor prophet, prophetic book in the canon and is a prophet himself. The book is autobiographical. We don't know if Jonah wrote it, but there's such intimate detail about his life and what was going on with him that most scholars think that he wrote it himself. And the, the book of Jonah is is it's not prophetic in the sense that he's giving oracles about other nations and giving oracles about the nation of Israel itself. The book of Jonah is a story about him and, and what he's going through in life. And that makes it a, a different kind of a book. Jonah lived during the 8th century. Um, it was written 800 years B.C., 800 years before Christ. And as I said, um, Israel, by this time, by his writing, it has been already split. The nation, because of Solomon's sin of, I mean, he, Solomon had 700 wives, 300 concubines, and he got into idolatry. And because he turned from God, God split the, the kingdom. Jonah was one of those prophets that got used to prophesy to the northern kingdom. All right. Jonah was sent to Nineveh. We learned that from, uh, from the very first three chapters of, of the book. He was the only prophet of the Israelite prophets to be sent outside of Israel. Jonah was sent to a foreign nation. He was sent to Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. If you turn back to Genesis 10, the narrative there tells us that Nineveh was built by a man named Nimrod. And Nimrod is one of the greatest warriors that you read about in all of Old Testament history. Nineveh, um, Nimrod was a great warrior. And because he was a great warrior, this, this city that he was building, this capital, Nineveh, in Assyria, ends up being a warring nation. In Jonah's day, Assyria was the mightiest nation on the earth. We, we would call them a superpower. They were also very wicked. They practiced very immoral warfare. The Assyrians were brutal. They, their, their brutality and their cruel nature of warfare was legendary. They were known to impale their enemies on stakes in front of their towns and hang their heads from trees in the king's garden. They would come into a town. They would kill the men. They would rape the women. They would take pregnant women and rip the babies from their unborn babies from women's stomachs. They'd take kids' heads, bang them against the stones. And if they didn't outright kill you when they came in to, uh, to, to overthrow your city, they would torture you. They would torture you by hacking off your nose, cutting off your ear, cutting off your finger, gouging out your eyes, or tearing off your lips and your hands. This is how brutal and wicked they were. And this is the nation that God sent Jonah to. Now think about that. If God would send you to that, a place like that, and you knew how wicked and brutal they were, how, what, would, what feelings would that conjure up in you? And so God's instructions to Jonah in verse 2. Arise, Jonah, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Great here means not that they were a good you know, benevolent, welcoming city. Great meant they were large. They were the largest city uh, amongst uh, the, the known world at the time. And so God told Jonah to go to Nineveh. And he, he wanted Jonah to tell this wicked nation to stop doing all the things that they were doing. And so in essence, Jonah was supposed to go and tell this wicked, brutal nation to, to stop doing politics the way you're doing it, to stop doing warfare the way you're doing it, to, to stop being a pluralistic, paganistic society. Because if you don't, God sees your wickedness and he's going to overthrow you. He's going to destroy you. Can you imagine, again, what Jonah was experiencing when God gave him this call to go to Nineveh and, and, and speak to them, even a, a word of warning? I, th I think this... Going to Nineveh for, for Jonah at this time to speak to that nation will be akin to God asking one of us to go as a missionary to Syria and and speaking to ISIS and telling them, just stop. Stop what you're doing. Stop trying to perform this Islamic state and do your own thing. I, I don't know. I would think that's kind of ludicrous. I, I would say, you got to be kidding. Me? Go there? All right, so that's the background, 
and a little bit of the setting. Next thing I want to cover is the story. Chances are, if you've read Jonah, you either believe the book of Jonah, it, it, you know, that it's, it's historical narrative, it's talking about a real person that lived in real time, or you, or you don't. Most scholars, in fact, understand Jonah to be either a, a legendary tale, allegorical, or even a parable. And so if the scholars don't believe it, ah, you know, it's, there's, some, there's, some, there's some contention there as to whether this is a real story or not. Of course, most object to Jonah because they find it hard to believe that a, a, a man was swallowed by a big fish and then was spat out and lived to tell about it. Okay, these people have a hard time believing that. Uh, Jonah is mentioned in one other Old Testament book. I'm going to talk about that towards the end of my sermon. And of course, in the New Testament, the most notable mention of Jonah is by Jesus himself. In both Matthew's and Luke's Gospels, Jesus validates the story of Jonah, that it was true. And, and this is my take on Jesus talking about Jonah. All right. So, you know, Jesus, he's God. And so if Jesus is going to talk about Jonah from the perspective of Jonah was a real man that lived well, you know, fish and all, then I'm going to go with Jesus. So this is the deal. You believing the story of Jonah or not believing the story does not change redemptive history. It doesn't change Jesus coming, living a perfect life, dying on the cross in our place for our sin. It doesn't. But as we'll learn here in a few minutes, what Jonah does and the, the, the story of his life and, and even all this that happens with him, disobeying God, being swallowed by fish, being spat out and going to going to speak to the Ninevites, it points to Jesus. And so that's a that's a an important thing that we'll come back to uh, pretty much every week here uh, in this in this series. The theme of Jonah is the theme of the whole Bible, the theme of sin and grace. And so if you're a Christian here today, then this is a thing that we need to hear about. I mean, we need to hear about this all the time. If you're a non-Christian and you're peeking in, just trying to figure out what church and and religion and Christianity is all about, then the Jonah story is going to unpack for you the very thing that God is trying to convey from cover to cover in his Bible. And it's conveyed starting in the in the book of Genesis. Uh, Genesis tells us God created a, a perfect world. He made it in six days, the seventh day he rested, and he made it such that everything was in harmony with each other. Adam and Eve lived in a perfect environment. I mean, can you imagine this? You, you got a perfect environment. You got a perfect, um, perfect job. You know, he was to tend the, you know, this, this garden that pretty much everything worked automatically all by itself. And oh, by the way, Adam and his, Adam and, Adam and his wife, they're walking around naked. And they didn't even have kids to interrupt them. I mean, can you, can you imagine how perfect that life must have been? That was probably PG-14 right there. I'm going to cut. All right, just pretend like I didn't say that if you're under 18. But unfortunately, um, that wasn't good enough for Adam and Eve. The, the environment they were in, as perfect as it, as it was, wasn't good enough for them. They sin. They do the exact thing God tells them not to do. They eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Sin ensues. And sin enters them. It enters the world. And everything is tainted from that. And the very first thing that Adam and Eve does after they sin is they go, they go and hide. They feel shame. They feel guilty. They are convicted. They run from God. It's important for us to, to understand what sin is in the likes of, of Adam and Eve. And there's a lot of ways we could define it. But the way that we see sin unfold in the story of Jonah is that Jonah is running from God. And so for that, sin is running from God. Um, Paul Tripp is an author and a Presbyterian pastor. He's like one of my favorite authors. If you ever see a book or quote or tweet or Facebook post by a guy named Paul Tripp, look at it, read it, ponder it. It's, it's, it's going to be good stuff. And Paul Tripp, uh, really in, in his marriage book, has this, this concept that he always talks about. Really, he talks about it all the time. And he talks about this, uh, how we live our lives. Okay, most of us approach life from the perspective of we think that we, as we're living life, that we are for God and for his truth, that we always want what God wants and we're always trying to follow God's ways. But Paul Tripp says this, we, in, in our actuality, really the way we live our life, we don't want what God wants. We want what we want and we want God to bless it. 
And that really is what, what sin is. We want what we want and want God to bless it. And so sin is, is, is wanting what we want, thinking that it's right, but in essence, we're actually doing that thing that God doesn't want us to do. And whenever we do that, we're running from God. That's sin. The other side of that is grace. And grace, from the perspective of the story of Jonah, is, is when God pursues us in spite of us. It's God pursuing us in spite of the fact that in some area of our life, probably several areas of our lives, we're shaking our fist at God, shaking it in his face and saying, you know, I'm not going to do what you want me to do. In fact, I want to do what I want to do and really don't care what you, God, would have me do. Instead of giving us judgment and justice because of us following our own desires, God gives us what we don't deserve. He extends mercy. He loves us by dying on the cross. And so that's that's sin and grace. And we're going to unpack that in the story of Jonah. And I would tell you, if you can understand outright this idea of sin and grace, that we are sinful people that always pursue what we want to the the neglect of what God wants. And even in that, God gives us his grace. Then you have figured out the Bible. You understand this story and your relationship to both God and other people will be all the more worthwhile. And so with that as a backdrop, this morning what I want to do is lay out some quick principles that were, you know, this, this is like a, uh, a foretaste of some of the topics that we're going to cover over the next six weeks in, in Jonah. This is an overview, all right? So we're not going to deep, dive deep into the text today. We're going to look at, I'm going to give you one point after I give you a few principles that we're going to see in the overall story of Jonah. The first is, you can run from God, but you can't outrun God. And, you know, as soon as I say this, I'm picturing like it's the Olympics and I got my, you know, I'm like Urkel. For those of you that are old enough to remember Urkel. And I'm like dressed up like a like a doof. And, you know, and God is looking like, you know, uh, uh, a hundred sprinter. And he's like, gonna, um, he even gives me uh, a you know, uh, half a track distance. He's just standing and waiting for me to get around. I'm going to take off and I'm like running and I'm I'm, I'm doing my Urkel thing. And, and God is just trotting and he he's eventually going to catch me. Right. You can run from God, but you can't outrun God. And as we as we look at our lives, the the truth is all of us in some area of our life are pursuing what we want to the neglect of what God wants. That's just true for all of us in the room. A lot of us are trying to run from God. And the question for us is what I mean, what happens when you run from God for Adam and Eve? Uh, they had immediate guilt. They had shame, condemnation, conviction. Power. They probably felt deceit because they had been tricked by by Satan coming in the form of a serpent. It was their action. But there were a whole bunch of external uh, circumstances that that led them to do what they did. And when we sin, we have these same effects that happen in our life. One of the things that we see happening in Jonah's life in regards to trying to run from God but not being out, be able, uh, being able to outrun him is he got depressed. And I would tell you, when, have, you ever, have you ever sinned and had so much guilt and remorse and conviction, condemnation possibly, that, I mean, you just, I mean, you just felt depressed? It's like, yeah, I just, I just disobeyed God. And I knew it was wrong, but I wanted to do what I did. And now I feel guilty, but I also feel depressed. And I, and I can't prove this. It doesn't say the word depressed. But it, it, as we look at Jonah's story, um, first of all, t- to run away from God, he gets on a he goes to Joppa, a coastal city uh, in the northern part of Israel. He gets on a ship of all things. And for those of you that know a little bit of history, the ancient Near Eastern time frame, getting on a ship, although ships were, I mean, they had, they had ships. Solomon had a, a whole fleet of ships. Okay, but getting on a ship during this 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 historical period was not the safest place that you could be in the world. And so for him to get on a ship was kind of crazy. And God brings a storm. And in verse five, you would think that in the middle of a storm on a ship, a crazy idea to be on a ship during this historical period, that Jonah would be awake, being frantic like all the other sailors and the captain that were on the boat. What was Jonah doing? He was underneath you know, the second layer sleeping. OK, what do you do when you get depressed? Yeah, you sleep. You can't help yourself. The second thing, your sin doesn't affect just affect you, but it affects other people, too. 
Your sin doesn't just affect you. It affects other people, too. I think we have all of us have uh, most of us have this insular perspective of our lives of uh, we have self-focused, selfish spirit, spirituality. We think that our lives are lived just me and God, and I'm doing those things that are beneficial to me and my relationship uh, to God. And when we think like that, really what happens is we think that only what we do, even if I disobey God, it's only going to affect me. But the story of Jonah proves that differently. And we see that in the, the reaction of the sailors. Jonah's sin, Jonah running from God, getting on that ship, even paying the fee, affected those sailors. Um, when Jonah is, is under the boat, sleeping, these sailors are dumping off all their precious cargo. I mean, this was their livelihood, and they're just dumping it over, thinking they're going to die, and tr- they're trying to figure out any way they could to save themselves. Thirdly, if you want to run from God, there, there's a lot of options. There's a lot of ways you can run from God. We're going to talk about these in a couple weeks. What are the options? Some of the ways that we run from, that we, that we escape life. This is what I'm talking about. Ways that we escape life, hobbies. Sometimes we, we pick hobbies and we escape life through them. Um, you know, I've known plenty of married men that outside of, you know, working a real hard job, that he'll get to the weekend and he'll spend all day doing a hobby. Going, going on the golf course, playing all day. And then on Sunday, he'll come in and watch football all day to the, to the neglect of his family. Is it wrong to play golf? Is it wrong to have a hobby? Absolutely not. Is it wrong to play football? Wrongly uh, to watch football? Absolutely not. I'm going to sit on my couch and vegetate and do it this afternoon. But when we do that to the, neg- to the, the, the neglect of other responsibilities, then we're running. And you can say you're not running from God, but you you likely are running from some responsibility that you should be doing in your life. I think of single guys that play video games six or seven hours a day. I'm picking. I'm poking right here. All right. Are video games bad? Absolutely not. My kids love video games. I play video games every once in a while, every once in a while. But if you're if you're a, a man over 18 and you're spending six or seven hours playing video games, there's likely some other responsibility that you could be working on to get ready for your manhood. I'm picking on the men. Substance abuse, drugs, alcohol, all those things that we turn to that helps us re- escape our reality are ways that we run. Some of us run to our friends. We surround ourselves with people because the worst thing in the world for us would be to be bored. Because if we're bored, we get lonely. And if we're lonely, we realize that we're disconnected from all these other things in the world that we really should be connected to. God, friends, and all that stuff. And, it, you know, if, and if we realize we're lonely, the thing is, we might have to make some changes in our life. And we don't want to make any changes because I want what I want, not what someone else wants. And lastly, some of us run... Some of us turn to spiritual activity to run, to escape our reality. And that sounds weird, but, you know, I know people who go to one church on Sunday morning. They go to another church on Sunday night. They go to a midweek service at a different church, and they have Bible studies all spread, sprinkled out throughout that time. And I would say spiritual activity is wonderful. Of course, as a pastor, I want people to be involved in spiritual activity, but someone involved in spiritual activity every day of the week is going to have a difficult time applying all of their learning and all those different avenues. And, and, and more than that, you know, a lot of times we can use Bible study and church attendance to escape um, God wanting us to seek solitude, get with him by ourselves and, and perhaps pursue God, um, you know, with just him and you, there are intimate times that we should be spending with us and God. And, you know, perhaps this is a, a good idea, too. If, if you're really wanting spiritual activity, oftentimes serving someone outside of yourself is, is the best way to go about it. So how not, go, you know, go downtown to Central Union Mission and serve the poor instead of serving and satisfying your own needs. Uh, in and of themselves, none of these things are bad. But the deception in all these is that God is endorsing these things that re- really is me trying to fulfill my wants. When I might just be running, I might be running from the reality of my life. And when I run from the reality of my life, the reality that God has given me, this is the life you're supposed to live. Then, in essence, I'm running from God. Fourthly, when we run from God, he doesn't chase us. He waits for us. And I've got to qualify this. Because I believe that God does pursue us. 
John 6 says that no one comes to the, uh, to the Father unless the Holy Spirit draws them. God is drawing us. He's pursuing us. He does that when we're a non-Christian. He does that when we're, when we're a Christian. But in God's pursuit of us, he's not, he's not, um, he's not running us down trying to, to pay us back for the wrongs that we do. He's not a vindictive God. He is not trying to pay you back. He is trying to gain you back. He's trying to get you back. You know, many people approach God with this perspective that God is out to get me. I think Adam and Eve had that perspective in the garden. I think their first thought was we got to go hide because God is going to be mad that we sin and did what he told us not to do. Exactly the opposite. Now, there were, were there consequences for sinning against God? Absolutely. There will always be consequences when you do those things that are outside of God's will for you. But God is not out to get you. He's out to gain you back. God is always trying to bring you to himself. That, that really is the heart of God. Fifthly, God loves wicked people. God loves wicked people. We're going to have some fun talking about this one because here's the, here's the deal. There are all kinds of people out in the world, some are in your own family that you just don't like. You don't like them. You don't like to be around them. You don't like anything about them. All of us struggle with self-righteousness. And self-righteousness is, in this idea, is this idea of there are, you know, I'm up here and there's some other people who are, are kind of lesser than me in some area of life. I, it's, 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 an, it's an I'm better than mentality mentality. And the question we all need to ask is, who are the Ninevites in your life? The Ninevites in Assyria were people that Jonah did. I mean, he was adamant. There's no way I'm going to go and do anything that God tells me to do amongst those people. And so who are those people? In your life that you might think about if God removes all these people from the face of the earth, that would be absolutely great. And in fact, if he could do it right now, today, it'd even be better. But the fact is, God loves wicked people. He loves wicked people who you may not like. And they're people that may be just like you or even different from you. This all boils down to this, that we're supposed to put ourselves in the, in the likes of this story in the place of Jonah. We're, we are the main character in this story. We are Jonah. Everybody say that. We are Jonah. It's the truth. If you get that, this story will make sense. And if you don't get that, then this is just going to be another, it's just going to be another interesting Bible story. And so I pray that you would get the fact that in many ways, you are Jonah. All right, let's dive into the text. All right, that was a lot of background, wasn't it? Was it, was it useful? All right, I hope, well, you'll, it, it'll play out over time. All right, we've got six weeks to get through this. It's only four chapters. Um, Jonah chapter 1, verse 1 through 3. All right, let's say these words out loud. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, Away from the presence of the Lord. Why would why in the world would anybody want to go away from the presence of the Lord? The psalmist says that in your presence is the fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Jonah was a prophet of God, called of God to be sent to his people to convey his word. And here we have a called prophet of God that turned his turned the opposite way of of, of the direction God was calling him to go, running from God. Why in the world would he do that? God told Jonah to go to Nineveh. Jonah was from the northern tribe of Israel. So imagine present day Israel and Nineveh is in present day Iraq. And so really in uh, the, the, the span of, you know, straight line distance, it's about 500 miles east of present day Israel as a Young major in the United States Army in 2003, the United States Army sent me with my unit um, to Mosul, Mosul, Iraq, which is the it's still called the Nineveh province. They're the ruins of Nineveh still there. And um, that's all I have to say about that. 
Um, so Jonah went there. OK, Jonah, Jonah should have gone there. But instead, he went to the coastal town on the, the western side of of northern Israel. He got on a boat, a ship, and that ship sailed him all the way through the Mediterranean. And he went to Tarshish and Tarshish would be in present day Spain, 2000 miles in the opposite direction. So here's, here's the question that we need to wrestle with as we jump into the text. Why did Jonah run? Why in the world would Jonah leave the presence of God to go and do exactly what God said not to do? To do that, we've got to jump in, uh, jump in some Old Testament, Testament history. Um, you can turn your Bible to 2 Kings chapter 14. We're going to read a, just a, a quick passage there and then jump back into, into Jonah. I mentioned that there's one Old Testament uh, passage that, that mentions Jonah, and this is that Old Testament passage. In 2 Kings 14, starting in verse 23, here's the word of the Lord. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, King of Israel became, uh, began to reign in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years. What's happening there? All right. So when you read the Old Testament, basically the books of Kings and Chronicles, uh, it's always comparing the king of Israel, the northern tribes, the ten tribes that made up the northern tribes, with the tribe of, of Judah. Okay, in the in the eighth century, uh, after Solomon turned from God. Um, Rehoboam, Solomon's son, took over the kingdom of Israel and God divided the kingdom. He gave Judah to Rehoboam, Solomon's son. They were the southern tribe. He gave all the other 10 tribes, minus the Levites who belonged to God, to a guy named Jeroboam, Jeroboam, son of Nebat. OK, he's mentioned here. OK, so that's what's happening in the first two chapters It's comparing the, the southern tribes, Amaziah, to the northern tribe. Verse 24, and he, Jeroboam, did what was evil in the sight of God. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. Verse 25, he restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was from Gath Hefer. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter. For there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. All right, that sounds complicated, but really all that's happening here is, is the, the historian is saying that God used Jonah, a prophet, who, was, who God sent to the northern tribes to prophesy that Jeroboam, a descendant of the very first Jeroboam, son of Nebat, that he would have victory. And the reason why this is significant is because Jeroboam II is a wicked king. All the, North, all the kings of the northern tribes are wicked. They practice idolatry. The Bible uses this phrase, that the king did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. You see it there in verse 24, 25. Jeroboam was wicked. Okay? And because the king was wicked, the nation was wicked. And what did God do when the nation was wicked? He would send a prophet and say, hey, get right. Here are the stipulations of the covenant. If you don't follow these, I'm going to curse you and your curse is going to lead into exile. That was happening. And so uh, this, is a, this is just one snapshot in the, in the life of the northern kingdom. OK. And so what's happening here is God is going. God, God should be getting ready to curse northern Israel because they're under a wicked king doing evil. But instead, he sends Jonah, the prophet, to them and says, hey, God is going to restore your land. God would send nations against Israel and have those nations defeat them. OK, take that. They would become vassal to, to su uh, suzerain kings would take their land and would make them subject, paying, uh, paying um, money to them and everything. And so in this case, God uses Jonah to go to uh, northern Israel and say, guess what? God is going to restore your land. He's going to be good to you. And that's really covenant. Why did God do that? Because God was in covenant with Israel. That last line, for the Lord, the Lord saw the affliction of Israel was very bitter. There was none left, bond or free. There was none to help Israel. So God came to help them. All right, so back to... Uh, the book of Jonah. This is important for understanding why Jonah ran. 
You know, some some would say that Jonah was scared. Okay, if you think about Assyria being a wicked nation and all that was going on, uh, I mean, we would hesitate to do what God would, you know, to, to answer God's call to go to a nation like that. And some would say that Jonah was scared to go to Assyria because he he feared what would happen to him if he went to a wicked nation like that. But as we go back to Jonah and look at the fourth chapter and and sneak peek on what happens at the end of the book, uh, we get uh, another rationale of why Jonah left. Jonah uh, chapter four, verse one through three. It says this. But this pleased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry and he prayed to the Lord and said, oh, Lord, it's not this what I said when I was yet in my country. This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. Jonah wasn't scared. Jonah didn't want he didn't want God to save the Ninevites. Jonah wanted what he wanted and he wanted God to bless it. He wanted God to do that thing that. He wanted them to do. He wanted God to smite, to destroy the Ninevites. Why? Because they were evil. They were an evil nation. But, but there's actually something more behind this. Jonah, Jonah was expecting God to use him as a prophet to his own nation. Remember when I said at the very beginning, Jonah is the only prophet that God sent as a foreign missionary outside of Israel to speak to a foreign nation and tell them to repent. This is what Jonah was against. Jonah didn't understand what was going on. Jonah expected, like, like God had always used him in 2 Kings chapter, uh, chapter 14, to, to go to the nation of Israel and be told, to, you know, as a covenant, pro, covenant prosecutor, uh, for Israel to get straight. Instead, God sent him to Nineveh, a wicked land with a wicked king. And that made no sense to Jonah. Why, why would God do that? To Jonah. I'm sure that's what Jonah thought. What is God doing? He couldn't get his mind around the fact that God was sending him to do something that he did not want to do. There's this phrase. I don't know where it comes from, and it's been used a lot. And so I'm just going to say that it's an anonymous phrase. But it's, it's this. God offends your mind to reveal your heart. God offends our minds to reveal those things that are in our heart. I think what, what God was asking Jonah to do did not make sense to him. It showed his true self. And the, the same thing really happens in our lives. God brings about situations where he's clearly speaking to us to do a certain thing. Forgive somebody that, that sinned against you. Be kind to somebody that's evil and mean. Um, fat, you ever know somebody, you know, has God ever spoken to you to fast? To, to fast either for an extended period of time or to fast Something very specific, and yet you can't understand really what he's getting at when he does it. Uh, maybe God is, is, is wanting you to speak up for somebody that's, that's, uh, that an injustice has been done to them. Or perhaps he's speaking to you to give away something that's very precious to you. And you, I mean, you just can't, you, you don't understand why. Get this. Maybe he's asking you to sell your house, move to another city, and plant a church. And you just can't, I mean, you say, like, what in the world? Where did that come from? And so like Jonah, sometimes it's exactly the opposite of what we expect. And in our finite minds, it's different than how we would go about it. The truth is we're not alone. If you think back to the the history of Israel, Genesis 12, God comes to Abraham out of nowhere. And he says, Abraham, I want you to leave your family and all that you know and go to a land that I'll show you. God didn't even show Abraham where he was supposed to go before he start before he made him start walking. I mean, could you do that? Could you have God come to you and say, look, check it out. I need you to leave and go over there. And as you're walking, taking steps, I'll show you exactly where it's going to be. That's what he did to Abraham. In Exodus three and four, God comes to uh, an insecure stutterer named Moses. And he shows up in a burning bush and starts talking to him. And Moses had been a shepherd for 40 years and says, hey, take that. Take that staff, lay it down, pick it up. OK, turns into a snake, made, made Moses leprous. And he says, I want you to go and speak to Pharaoh. Yeah, Pharaoh, the guy that you were just um, living with as a, as, a, as a stepson. And I want you to tell him to let my people go. And Moses didn't understand. He's like, you want, you want to use me to do what? 
um, in the book of, of Daniel. Daniel was a, a, a pro, uh, he was a, 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 a young man in the king's court for the nation of, of Judah, the southern tribes of Judah. And um, in seven, uh, 586 B.C., God uh, sends Babylon to take them into exile. And Daniel lives in Babylon. And as soon as he gets there, he uh, he's uh, made a eunuch. He's put in the eunuch's court. He's going to serve the king of Babylon. And God has him fast all the king's food and only eat certain things. And then in the New Testament, John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, uh, in, in, you know, in, in John's ministry, he gets put in jail. And John is confused because John knows that Jesus is the Messiah. But all of a sudden, John's in jail. And he's like wondering, well, what? I thought he was a Messiah. Why? Why? Why aren't things happening? Yeah, why didn't he like, overthrowing the Roman government and, and getting me out of jail? And so John sends his own disciples to, um, to Jesus, and they ask him, so, so are, you the one that, are you the one that's supposed to come, or should we be looking for another dude to come and start making some stuff happen? These are all examples of instances in the Bible where God, um, God offends our mind to reveal our heart and, and show us that life is not always what we expect. And of course, we ultimately see what this book is about when we get to the Gospels. Matthew 12, 38 through 42 says these words. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she, who, uh, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The story of Jonah was a sign to all that God loves the whole world. Jesus says he would use this sign of Jonah being in a, a fish and being spat out, you know, three days in a fish and being spat out as a sign that God loves wicked people. And Jonah couldn't. I mean, Jonah, there's no way Jonah could have understood this from where he was. Yet. This was God's message. And sometimes we don't get that either. And so I'm getting ready to close, but I got, I got some homework for you as we get into this, this, this series here. Um, Isaiah 55, 8 through 9 says this. For my thoughts are not your... In fact, read this with me. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than yours, and my thoughts than your thoughts. What, what's God saying here? Is sometimes we just don't know what he's doing. Sometimes we have our, our idea of how life should be, how our own lives should go, and we're offended when it doesn't go like that. But, but God's ways are higher. And he, the, the truth is, he doesn't always tell us everything that we want to know. And I think we have to be okay with that. And when you, when you really get these verses right here, you begin to learn that God does things sometimes that we don't always get. And so... Jonah ran from God. And as we're going to find out over the course of this series, we, we, we run too. In fact, some of us are running right now. You may, be running in, you may be running from the reality of your life, not intending to run from God. But when you run from the reality of life that God gives you, you, in essence, are running from God. And so how do you know if you're running? Well, let me rephrase that. I just said it. We're all running from God in some way in our life. And so how do you find out how you're running? Well, I, I think as we get into the book, you know you're running from God if God is asking you, if he's leading you to do some things in some area of your life that actually don't make sense. It didn't for Jonah. Perhaps there's some area in your life right now that doesn't make sense. And God perhaps will unfold for you what he's after in the days ahead. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the, your word. We thank you for the narrative of Jonah. 
this, this crazy book in the midst of the, the minor prophets of the Old Testament um, that really shows us life not as we would expect it. And the story of Jonah is really weird in that um, he was called to the nation of Israel to preach and, and you send him somewhere else. You send him to a wicked people um, to, to remind Jonah and the, the readers that will read this that um, you're a God that, that, that loves people that don't love you. You love wicked people. And that's a hard pill to swallow for some, for, for some of us who are self-righteous because we, we oftentimes want control over who we love and we, wanna, we don't want to have control over who you love too. And so God, break us from our self-righteousness. We pray that we would see the things that we don't see. And when we don't, we're not, when we're not able to see it, when you're unwilling to show it to us, Lord, that, that you would give us grace. Extend grace to us, Lord God, like you did to Jonah. Put up with our mess. Put up with our complaining and whining. And when we run from you, Lord God, we pray that you draw us near. Draw us back. We trust that you're not out to get us, but you're out to gain us back. You did that for Jonah. Do it for us. For those those here right now, sitting in these seats that are running from you in whatever area of their life, even if they won't confess it, they're running from some of the reality in their life. God, I pray that you would extend your grace to them. Be, Be gracious to them, Lord, even now. That you would show them their sin that you would stop them in their tracks, help them to turn around. And and instead of running from you, they would run to you. And Lord, would you stand there with your arms open wide and receive them with your love and your grace and the care that only you can give. I pray that in Jesus' great name. Amen. And amen.